Let's pray. Father, behold our God. I don't know that we could say much more. Behold our King. I pray that uh, our thoughts of you consume our thoughts, consume our hearts, our minds. Father, that you are more than just some stupid religious activity. You're the king of the world, the universe, the creator, the maker of all things, the sustainer. He's all-powerful. Father, you are perfectly just, demanding righteousness and holiness. Your law is perfect. Even your law is love to us. Father, even in the midst of that, our King is merciful. Even in His justice, He is gracious. And behold, our King loves us. Father, You will reign forever. And Your Son will reign forever on behalf of your name forever. His seat has never been threatened. His power has never waned. Father, there's never been a chance of defeat and there never will be a chance of defeat. Our side always and will always win. And Father, our power is not first and foremost against the, this culture that we live in, this world that we're in, the persecution that may or may not come. Our fight is not with that, but our fight is first and foremost with our sin that separates us from a holy God. And Father, that battle you won. Father, that battle you won 2,000 years ago, but that was not a surprise. You were not sitting around twiddling your thumb until that day came. You were never wishing or waiting for that day to come, but Father, your plan was simply to work towards the redemption of a people that would call you God, that would call you Father. And that would call you their Savior. And so, Father, as we work through the text this morning, as we behold our King, let us not forget that our King has revealed Himself to us objectively in His Word, the Bible, that we get to hold in our hands this morning. So when we read these words, we read the very words of God, 
your revelation to us. Let us not take lightly these words. Let us not take flippantly these words, but let us see them with power that they hold to set us free from our sins so that we might delight not in the wretchedness of this world, but delight in the wondrous, infinitely glorious beauty of our King. So Father, with that, let us read. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. Father, your words say this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What an astounding thought. For those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything To his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, if anyone sees a brother not committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So today, here is our plan for today. I want to show you John's goal, John's result, and then John's warning. John's goal, John's result, and then John's warning. Would someone be kind enough, Sarah, would you grab me a tissue? Otherwise I'm going to be sniffing the whole time. much better there we go john's goal john's result john's warning all right we have we have a lot to cover this morning uh in these last few verses and trying to wrap up first john talk about the resurrection and uh, launch us into second john next week and and all that so we're, uh, we're going to boogie here, but first of all, the goal. What is John's goal in 1 John? First, John's goal is knowing that I know God. He says in 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's goal, my, you know, one of my friends from seminary, Mitch, some of you guys know him. If you don't, you'll know them later as they bring a mission team up at the end of June. 
He says this, it's kind of like you have to preach John 5, 1 John 5.13 in every sermon of the book of 1 John. That's why every title in the book of 1 John is knowing God and dot, 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 dot. Because every sermon in 1 John is based around this premise here that we might know that we know God. That there would be assurance of our eternal life. John's purpose in writing all along has been that we would know that we have eternal life. Now I'm afraid that a couple things could be happening. Even at this very moment. One is this. Some of us might indeed be justifying the lack of evidence of faith and life with Christ and following Him with excuses and or other religious activity. That's a danger. I go to church, therefore I must be a Christian. I read my Bible, so therefore I must be a Christian. So we justify our salvation with religious activity or other excuses. So we look at our life and we go, yeah, I don't see that really that much evidence or, or, uh, or yeah, I do have evidence and it's, it's these religious activities that I've kind of sprinkled throughout my life to kind of help make me feel good about my salvation. The second thing that I think could be happening is this. We are the only ones speaking to ourselves concerning the evaluation of our souls and life. My question is this. When was the last time someone sat down with you in an intimate conversation and said, brother, sister, you are sinning in this area of your life? When was the last time that happened? How often does that happen? Or have you set up life in such a way that the only one who can speak sin directly or speak truth directly into your life in an intimate, knowing way is you, yourself, and I. But it wouldn't be me. It would be you. You know what I'm saying. Me, myself, and I. There we go. Have you set it up in such a way that the only, well, I mean, other than, like, like this, this counts, but not, doesn't count for what I'm talking about. Like, preaching is different than someone who, who intimately knows what's going on in your life and can say, look, the evidence doesn't add up. The evidence in your life, according to the Bible, in this way, this way, and this way, does not indicate that indeed you follow Christ, but actually indicates that you follow the prince, the power of this world, and not God. Or do when those people come by, do you excuse that away as, well, they don't know me. Uh, or have you set it up in such a way that no one feels comfortable coming to you and saying, Brother, the evidence doesn't look right. Understand that if you've set life up that way, your perseverance is probably slim to none. The chances of you persevering in your faith is probably slim to none. Matter of fact, it's probably indicative of a lack of saving faith that you unwelcome people into your life. And so my fear is twofold. We justify the lack of evidence in our life with excuses or other religious self-righteousness. The other thing I'm afraid that might be happening as we've looked at First John is we are the only ones or you are the only one who can speak 
to yourself concerning the evaluation of your soul. Unfortunately, to the second point there, unfortunately the most accurate assessment of your soul is probably not going to come from yourself. You're probably not going to have a real grasp on the reality of your soul. I think the first and foremost, the place that we must go that is going to have the reality of of the, the true picture of what's going on in our soul is first and foremost the Word of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God gives us the right mirror to see our lives. It speaks to the reality of our lives. And then the other place that we should be going as we evaluate our lives to get an assessment, a, a, a grasp on the reality of the state of our souls and our state of our relationship with God is the body of Christ. God has given us the body to aid, to, to help secure even perseverance. Not in an ultimate sense, clearly that's the Holy Spirit and securing us and sealing us before God. But God has given us the body of Christ to help us through the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit to get a grasp on the reality of the state of our souls. So as we work through this passage today, I want to encourage you to ask God to help you honestly assess yourself. Matter of fact, more specifically, and I wish I'd have written it this way in my notes, that you would ask the Word of God to assess, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to assess your soul. This is not a small matter. This is not, well, where should I go to eat at, or what investment should I make, should I move my money from this account to this account. This is an eternal investment, and your perseverance is dependent upon it. So, some of this is going to seem a little bit like review, but I hope that by repetition, that, we, that some of this becomes so ingrained in our hearts and so consuming that these are the things that we begin to think about every day when we consider our soul and consider our walk with Christ and eternal life. So next, three things here that pertain to John's goal of knowing that I know God. What what are those three things? The first one is this. A person who knows God loves the family of God. A person who knows God loves the family of God. Let Let me say this. I've preached on this, and we've talked about this loving the family of God multiple times over the past few months. And I know, and I'm just going to speak kind of prophetically here as far as foretelling of the truth. We don't have this. We're doing better. But this, we don't get to check out at this point, okay? Like, don't check out, because we don't have this figured out. Again, doing better. I don't want to be all negative Nancy here, okay? But, but we can't check out. Let's move forward. First John 5, 16-17, he says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading in death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead 
to death. All right, so that's, that's a bit of a hard, and probably this verse took me the most time to study this past week. But let's give, a, give it a shot here. At the very heart here, John's desire is that you have concern for the body of Christ like you should have for your own brother. At the heart of what's going on here, in the context that is 1 John, his concern is your love for your brother. Now, hold that thought because we're going to flesh this out. It's going to take us a little bit to work through these couple verses. So just hold that thought for just a moment. When we talk about this love for the family of God, love for our brethren, as John says often, one thing that occurred to me over this past week is that for many of us, and particularly in the broader culture of the church and of our society today, we're terrible when it comes to loving our brothers. I guess we're terrible at loving our extended family, even. We're, we're terrible at this. So I don't, I, it occurred to me this past week that to encourage you all to love the brethren like you love your brothers would be like, for many of us, would be like, man, I haven't talked to my brother in like, you know, six months or two weeks or I haven't talked to my brother in even a week or, or whatever. And, and, and so it's not a good, like, measure for many of us. A more modern example, I think, of what John is talking about here in loving is maybe, for many of us, the love that we have for our children. If you don't have children, um, if you've been around the church for a while, I think you've at least seen the love that parents have for their children, and, and, and I hope you can relate here with me for a few moments, but there's, there's a, a love for our children, principally, this is what's displayed in that relationship. You know, for me and with my kids, this, this is selfless love. Not perfectly selfless, but there's a selfless love, a giving of myself to my kids. There's a relentless love, like a relent, as in, as in, it's a love that's going to fight for them. It's a love that's going to pursue them. It's a gracious love. Now, practically speaking, this love is consistent. You consistently check on them. Just give you some examples here. You don't assume that they're just going to get done whatever it is, the task that's set before them. You don't assume that your kids are just doing okay, right? You don't just assume my son in, in spirituality, in growth, and even just in practical everyday things. I don't just uh, assume that everything's going okay. You give preference to your kids, right? Some of us, too much preference. But nevertheless, you give preference to your kids. You alter your life rhythms to be in sync with your kids. And some of us, too much alteration goes on, but you get the point. We alter to be in sync and to move our kids. Now what is John saying when it comes to loving the family of God? The first thing and this is a little bit of a review in the book of 1 John, is that a person who knows God, loves the family of God, and the first way that this looks, 
that loving is and loving means laying down your life. Laying down your life. John has said that if you know God, you'll be willing to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the key is here, you, you have to take and flesh that out yourself. Because I can't tell you exactly how that applies in this situation. I can't give every scenario for your life. Nor does Paul or John give that here. You have to take that. So there's lots of times when we come down to decisions in life, whether this job or this thing that I need to do here or, or this event here or, or whatever it is, and we go, well, the, well, God's Word doesn't give me the answer to making that decision. I would argue in many cases God's Word does give you the answer to that decision. You just don't like it. God's called you to lay down your life. That doesn't mean serve yourself every chance you get. It means lay down your life. It's pretty simple. Matter of fact, if you don't know what lay down your life means, just look to the cross. That's what John says. Let me just, let me just ask you here. Does John say here, lay down your life for mom and dad? Does John say here, lay down your life for your kids? Now, certainly, there would be value and necessity to lay down our lives, even for those who are not redeemed on behalf of the poor and and behalf of the the parentless and fatherless and motherless and all those things. I I got that. But I just want to make sure that we don't just take what John's saying of laying down our lives and apply that to the places we want to apply it to. You see, it's hard to lay down our lives for a bunch of people that we just half-heartedly know. It's easy to lay down our lives for our kids that we love and adore. But Paul or John does not say here, he's, that's not the context that we lay our lives down for them. He's saying we lay our lives down for those who are following Christ by our side. So just, again, I'm not saying he's excluding laying down our lives for those. But he's, what he's talking about here is laying down our lives for those whom Jesus has laid down his life for and called to redemption. 1 John 3, 11-18. Let's read just in case we forgot this part of 1 John. It says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now instead of this ambiguous love, I'm going to give you an example. Verse 12, We should not be like Cain. So I'm not going to let you think of love in an ambiguous way. I want you to think about Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Hmm. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we avoid the spirit of Cain, the murderous spirit of Cain, by laying down our lives for our brothers. Men. Let me just speak to you men for a second. You're not doing your wife or kids any favors when you sacrifice 
the body for them, and then turn around and sacrifice them for a paycheck, a sport, your own selfishness, your own agenda. Because there's no room for selfishness in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul or John is saying here. There's no room for selfishness in the kingdom of God. To everyone in general, not just men, but how are you teaching your kids today to lay down their lives for the family of God? Because parents, if you're not teaching them, they're not going to learn magically how to lay down their lives for the family of God. It's not just going to one day go, poof, there it is. It's not going to happen. They've got to be taught that. They've got to be taught sacrifice for the family of God. Why? Because John says that it's someone who knows God loves the family of God. Let me ask you this. When it comes to our kids, what are you making them give up for the family of God? Do kids ever have to give up anything for the family of God? I'm going to push in here a little bit. How about sports? Your kids ever have to give up sports for the family of God? Miss a game? Or do we tell them the church revolves around our sports? The church can be sacrificed for that. How about straight A's? Would you ever have your kid give up study time for the family of God? Or straight A's more important? How about you men? What are you giving up for the family of God? What are you sacrificing for the family of God? You be giving up your pride of busyness so that you can be available to the family? Women, what are you women giving up for the family of God? As John is telling us here, look, a person who knows God wars against selfishness. He fights at it at every turn. He recognizes, I know, I know, I know, I know when it comes to our families. We say, well, it's not about me, it's about my family. Uh, is it really? As the body, here's what's wonderful, the body of Christ provides an opportunity for you to lay down your life for someone you wouldn't otherwise do so. Who did that? Jesus laid down his life for a bunch of people who did not deserve it. The body gives us an opportunity to lay down our lives for a whole lot of people that does not, that do not deserve it. It's an opportunity for us to flesh out, for us to work through our selfishness. It's hard to lay down your life for someone you barely even know. But see, that's the point. We're family. So it shouldn't be that hard. Because you should know them well enough that you give, that you would give your life for them. So that was a little bit of review. Loving means laying down your life. The second thing loving means is caring for the body physically. Loving means caring for the body physically. Again, a little bit more review here. 1 John 3, 17 through 18. Let me repeat that again. Loving means caring 
for the body physically. 1 John 3, 17-18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this love, this love, that is only, it's sacrificial to the point of laying down your life, that which is most precious to you. It should also look practically physical. Our love should have a visible, tangible expression. It should be practically physical. John's point is that you can imaginatively, imaginatively take the extent of sacrifice for your brother as far as you want. In your mind, you can think, okay, I would sacrifice to this point, to this point, to this point, even to the point of laying down my life. But the reality is, is that if you're not willing to give up something practically physical, then you'll never lay down your life for them. Let me give you some examples. The reality is that you would never lay down your life for them if you're not willing to give a half day's worth of work to help your brother subdue his house or sister, her house. Or you would never give up your life for them if you're not willing to give up a dinner to help someone work through their finances, maybe even giving them some of yours to help them. You would never give up your life if you're not willing to give up a walk and a talk to care for your brother or sister's marriage. You would never give up your life if you're not willing to give up an evening of watching another family's kids so that they can work, the parents can work on their marriage. You would never give up your life for your brothers or sisters if you cannot give up a season of sports so you can care for the family. You would never give up your life for the family of God if you would not give up a few nights of less sleep so that you can pray for someone in the family. You would never give up your life for the family of God if you're not willing to give up a couple hours of overtime in order to sit down with a brother and work through his struggles. So don't kid yourself. You never lay down your life for your brother and sister if you are not willing to do these things that are so much easier. Let me give you a practical example at this point. It's Easter, right? We all go do biological family stuff today. We all go hang out with family. Hopefully, we didn't make lunch plans today selfishly. Let me just be very practical here. Hopefully you consider the needs of the body and the fact that everyone might want to go and spend time with their biological family today. Hopefully you consider people in the body who also may not have an extended biological family in the area to spend time with today. Maybe we all want to leave. Just, a, just again, just a practical Example, like if we believe, if we want to know that we know God, John's, John says that we'll lay down our lives for them. Our giving, our loving will look practically physical. We can't just stop there. We have to go now. How does that 
work itself out in my life? How does that guide my decision making for today, for this morning, for this week, for next week? How does that look? It looks practically physical, but, but we have to, 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 to tease that out, if we will, for the rest of our lives, for, for every day of our lives, for every moment of our lives. What does this look like for the Word of God to lead me? And it, guys, here's the deal. If, if, the, if the creator of the universe, if the redeeming power of the Son of God is at work in your heart, then God's desires, which at this point we clearly know what God's desires are, that it will look practically physical for the body, then that desire will become your desire. And this doesn't seem to be a hard decision any longer. Number three, loving means caring for the body spiritually. Loving means caring for the body spiritually. That brings us back to 1 John chapter 5, or 16 through 17. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Again, difficult couple verses to understand. The main debate is centered in this, past, in, this, in this couple verses around the phrase, sin that leads to death. And why wouldn't we pray for this person? So sin leading to death. Let's talk about that for a few moments. Sin leading to death, in quotations. The entire book of John is written concerning fruits in keeping with a person who knows God, right? This is the, the fruits. So the kind of character and heart of someone who has been redeemed. That's the picture that's being painted here in 1 John. This sin that leads unto death seems to be simply sins that are in violation of the fundamental terms of relationship with God. So it seems to be that when he, I, I, the best that I can understand what John is saying here is that the sin leading to death is sins that are obviously like in violation with the very fundamental core of what it means to be a follower of Christ. This would be sin that would negate a person's confession as a Christian. So God would see this sin as ultimately evidence of the unregenerate heart of this person. Right, so that's sin leading to death. Next phrase. I do not say that one should pray for that. Oh my goodness, what is John talking about here? First, notice that John is not forbidding us to pray for them. That's a key. John is not saying, do not pray for them. He's saying, I wouldn't. He is discouraging them to pray for them. Now why? Why? I think this gets to the overall message of 1 John. Hear me. To pray that God would grant eternal life to a person who commits sin that God deems worthy of death is at the very least a risky task. It's risky 
Because it could potentially signal an unwillingness in our hearts to abide by God's emphatic testimony that fellowship with Him is contingent on acknowledgement of sin and embracing and an embracing of Christ as Savior. So what could be going on in our hearts, I think what John is saying is that the risk, at the very least, this is risky here when we would pray on behalf of someone who is clearly living a life that is not in keeping with the character of God and one called the following God, that we stand to risk sympathy. That we would become sympathetic to the point of questioning God's judgment on that person. I think there's a danger there. Now, here's what's interesting. On the offset of this, we have Jesus praying for those who crucified him, right? So I don't think here that we can say John, John is not saying do not pray for them. I think there's a warning here that we be cautious, that we don't miss the whole picture of what's going on in 1 John, that someone who's following Christ looks this way, and when they don't look this way, we begin to pray for them, become sympathetic for them, and then we miss what God, the, the righteousness that God demands of that. But at the same time, we see Christ who's praying for them. So, John clearly is not saying don't do it. I mean, because then he would be in contradiction with Christ. Think in the context here. So if, the, if still that's a little bit of fuzziness there, that's okay because I don't think you're going to miss the main point. The main point here is that a person who knows God is a person that is deeply bothered by a brother's sin. I think that's the main point of these two verses. Is that a person who knows God is a person that is deeply bothered by a brother's sin. When you see a brother or sister in sin, you see destruction that's coming upon them. You see them robbing themselves of the joy of the gospel. You see that they are hurting other people around them. I want you to notice next in that passage, the he shall. If anyone sees, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother continuing, uh, committing rather, a sin, not leading to death, he shall. John here is not giving a command telling us what to do when our brother sins. Okay? Listen here. He's not giving us a command telling us what to do when a brother sins. Instead, he is telling us that a person who knows God will indeed pursue his brother in his sin. That he shall. Like he will do this. It's not a you're a Christian, now go do this. It's, it's you're a Christian, this will happen. And if you're not a Christian, then this won't happen. Or if this doesn't happen, then you're not a Christian. That's the point. He shall. The idea here is that it, it will happen. So Christian, let me ask you this question. How are you pursuing your brothers and sisters in sin? Let me ask you this. How are you welcoming pursuit from your brothers and sisters in your sin? Or have you put a hedge around you? Like I know as Christians, like our protective hedges, right? If you've been in the church for a long time, you ever pray that God would put a protective hedge around us? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's great. 
But some of us have the wrong protective hedge around us. It's the protection of our sin around us. We kind of build a hedge. People around us are afraid because it might run us away from the church or it might offend us or so and so forth. I mean, even as I preach and preach these words, I, I, I have fear of man in preaching some of these words because honestly, I don't want some of you to be mad at me. Now, that's a sin in my own heart, even in this very moment. But part of that's, it's not all me, part of that's you. Because some of us have hedges built around us. That, that the danger there is that maybe we won't be friends anymore. Because those words hurt my feelings. Now honestly, I, what I have to do is I have to repent. Because my fear should be more for God than it is for you. And teach the word. Help us live the word and apply it to our lives. But Christians, how are you pursuing your brothers and sisters in sin? How are you welcoming pursuit from your brothers and sisters in your sin? All right, so the goal of John is knowing that I know God. So how do I know that I know God? Number one, that I love the family of God. Secondly, a person who knows God pursues holiness. A person who knows God pursues holiness. Let's read 1 John 5, 18-19. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now let's just stop for just a second right now. What, you don't answer this out loud, but just think to yourself for just a second. What does my pursuit of holiness look like? What does my pursuit of holiness look like? Do I even know what my pursuit of holiness looks like? If that's what you're asking, then that's very indicative, okay? What does your pursuit of holiness look like? Is it something you consider once a week? Is it something you think about once a month? Is, or is it something daily? Is it a routine? Is it consistent? Because John says here, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So a person who has been born of God cannot disregard the pursuit of holiness. It has to happen. It's a part of it. Again, it's not a command to do it. At this point in the text, it's a result of. So it's not a, oh, I need to confirm my Christianity so I'm going to pursue holiness more. It's no, my Christianity, my following Jesus is confirmed more as it flows into a pursuit of holiness. So what he's talking about here is not continuing, continuing in habitual sin. Church, you should be overcoming sin in your life. You should be looking back. You should be able to look back on the past week, the past month, and go, ah, that sin, man, I, 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 think, I think there was some overcoming of that particular sin in my life over the past three months. Or, or maybe like, you know, I'm struggling with this one. I'm worn against this sin, this sin of lust or this sin of, of pride or whatever. And I'm warring against it. And, and, you know, I have good days. I have bad days. But I, I trust that God is working this out of me. And, and, I, and I'm seeing the fruit and the progress and that pursuing holiness as God is perfecting His image in me. Do you have overcoming of sin going on in your life. If you cannot look back over the past couple months, I mean, I'm being, I think I'm being gracious here, and point to specific sin that you've overcome or are in the process of overcoming, then you need to question whether or not you know God or not. 
God does not set up an idol factory. I mean that in both sense of the, of the word. He does not set up, set up a factory that is idle, that sits there and produces nothing. It will produce holiness. He also does not set up a factory that produces idols as an I-D-O-L. Where you're pursuing unrighteousness. The pursuit here, John's talking about, is the pursuit of not continuing in habitual sin. But then also, I think by implication, the pursuit to realize further holiness. Like not just, all right, I'm going to sit around and let God kind of work on my sin. But actually working towards this. And I think this is where many of us get in trouble are going to get in trouble this morning. We have no pursuit of increasing holiness. Our, our holiness, our growing in holiness, for many of us, is nothing but a passive activity. And even that's kind of an oxymoron, because there's activity, but it's pa- like, you're not doing anything. You're just kind of like, I'm going to let go and let God when it comes to my righteousness. Now certainly, we have to let God do it. Ultimately, it is God. But there's also us running the race, too, and us pursuing holiness. So I think many of us get in trouble where we don't actually pursue it. There's no pursuit of increasing holiness. Or your pursuit, our pursuit, my pursuit even, is weak and pathetic. I like what John Owen says here. He says, sin remains, acts, and works in the best of believers while we are yet in this world. It must be our constant daily duty to mortify it. Even though there is in this generation, of course this was John Owen writing years and years ago, but even for us this stands true today, even though there is in this generation a growing number of professors, a great noise of religion, religious duties in every corner, and preaching in abundance, there is little evidence of the fruit of true mortification. Perhaps we might find that, judging by the principle of mortification, the number of true believers is not as multiplied as it appears from those who have made a mere profession. Some speak and profess a spirituality that far exceeds the former days, but their lives give evidence of a miserable, unmortified heart. If vain spending of time, idleness, envy, strife, variance, emulations, wrath, pride, worldliness, selfishness are the mark of Christians, we have them among us in abundance. May the good Lord send us a spirit of mortification to cure our distempers or we will be in a sad condition. Idleness, envy, strife, variance, emulations, wrath, pride, worldliness, selfishness. Are those the mark of Christians today? Is that, are those the marks of your life? Now just get practical for a second here. How, do, how is it I pursue holiness? How, how, is that, how do I pursue holiness? How do I do what John is telling me this is supposed to happen? How do I work hard towards this? We talk a lot about how it's God's work in us, but as Kevin DeYoung, I like what he says in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness, he says, effort is not a four-letter word, if you pick up the drift. God's mercy does not automatically produce obedience and holiness. John Piper, I like what he said, he goes, when it comes to killing my sin, 
I don't wait passively for the, mil- the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me. I act the miracle. So the miracle of God's redemption will work itself. Like, I act on that miracle. It's already happened. Like, our overcoming of sin has already happened. Let's realize it. Like, that sin has already been put to death. That's what we celebrate today. The miracle has already happened. Now let's enjoy it. Practical. How do I pursue holiness? Knowing the word. Ask God for a hunger. Discipline our study of it. Some of you were in secret church this past Friday night. We talked a lot about some of these practical things here. Knowing the word. How do I, how do I get into the word more? I like what Dr. Platt talked about. The more you know the word, the more you'll want to know the word. It's just kind of self-perpetuating, if you will. The desire for it is self-perpetuating. The more you know it, the more you want it. Another way, pursuing holiness, submitting to the body. Relational openness within the body. Inviting people into your hearts. Asking people regularly, what does my life look like? Is it one that looks like a follower of Christ? Now brace yourself to have your feelings hurt when that happens. Get ready. This is good for you. And trust me, it's not fun for the other person. If it's fun for them, then they got to work on their sin. Okay? All right, I just had like lots of thoughts just rolled through my mind right there. Another way, pursuit of holiness. For lack of better terms, teasing out implications and applications of the text. What does it look like? For this passage to work itself out in my life this week. You should easy, in, in most sermons, from the text that we're studying, at least two or three items that you can look at in that text and go, I'm going to tease this out in my life every bit, every moment this week. So for example, this week, what does it mean to lay down my life for the brethren? What does it mean? Maybe that's one, and maybe the other two is, what does it mean for me to lead my kids to lay down their life for the body? So those are two things. I'm going to tease that out this week. So in every situation, I'm going to let these thoughts guide my thoughts of how, do I, how does that determine my decision in this situation? Thinking through the application of the text. This is not interpretation. This is different. We're talking about application of the text. It's not what does the text mean to me today. It's how does the text apply to this situation in this moment today. So two different things. If you're confused on that, we certainly talk about that. But we pursue holiness. Now, going in the passage, because he has, actually has some good news here. He says, we are under the protection of Christ. So if you go to the back, back to the passage, it says, but he who was born of God protects him. So he is Christ, and him is us. So if we were to put the names in there, but Christ, who was born of God, protects us. And the evil one does not touch us. Because he can't. Now we can willingly give ourselves. But how does Christ protect us? Just very quick, how does Christ protect us? Now, the full answer to how Christ protects us would be the summary of 1 John. I can't, you know, give you the recap of 1 John. You're kind of getting that already. But think about it. Go back to John 1-7. Just write these down. Cleansing us from sin. John 1-7. 1 John 1-7, rather. 
cleansing us from sin. That's how he protects us. He cleanses us from sin. John, 1 John 2, 1, interceding in the Father's presence. So he intercedes on our behalf before God. That's part of how he protects us. By confirming knowledge, 1 John 2.20. Right? Who knows the truth? We'll be set free. So confirming knowledge would be a great way to protect us. Right? 1 John 3.8, destroying the devil's works. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah. John 3, 8. How about 1 John 3.16? Not John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Teaching believers the meaning of love. That's how Christ protects us. He teaches us the meaning of love. Isn't that interesting? If John 3.16, for God so loved the, God so loved the world, and then in John 3, 1 John 3.16, he teaches us the meaning of love. You can look at that later. John 17, 11, here's a, now this is the gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 11. He says, and I, this is Jesus, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. How are we protected? By God, ultimately, right? I mean, even all these things, cleansing us from sin, interceding on our behalf, confirming our knowledge, de- destroying the devil's works, teaching us the meaning of love. That's all God's work. It's His work in protecting us. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 20 through 29. Listen to these words. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now the world, though, in this passage, is still under the power of Satan. Unlike the Christian, Satan does indeed have a hold on this world. The world is under the influence, the persuasion of the evil one. And as we know from 1 John, the world is calling God a liar. And when you and I are succumbing to the desires of the flesh, we are placing ourselves in submission to Satan, to the power of this world. You are saying that Satan and the things of this world is more desirable than the king, God, himself. So let me just ask you a question. Um, Do you consider yourself a follower of Christ? Do you have a pursuit of holiness? Do you have a pursuit of holiness that others around you would confirm? That they, would, that they see that? If you don't have a pursuit of holiness, let me introduce you to Jesus, who was holy. He was perfect. And he died on the cross for your lack of holiness. Because no measure of holiness could ever measure. Not enough right things you could ever do could make you right before God. So Jesus sends His Son, or God sends His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. 
to atone, to pay the price for your unholiness. And that when we repent from our sin, place our faith in Him, in His holiness, His atoning work on the cross. And we say, God, it's not me, it's you. And give ourselves to Him. Redemption can happen. hearts are changed. And we don't earn holiness, we're given holiness from Christ. And then the outworking of that holiness is what I'm talking about here, and what John's talking about here is the pursuit of holiness. We are given Christ's holiness, and then because Christ now abides in us, now we pursue holiness, because there's a part of us that is already holy. That it has been realized, but yet we're not completely there yet. And that is working itself out. Or we are working that out. God is working that out in us. So, someone who knows God, loves the family of God, pursuit of holiness, and thirdly, abides in the truth. Abides in the truth. And we, he says this in 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So just a few notes in this passage here. We'll go through this one pretty quickly. The understanding has come from God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. In our enlightened, um, even semi-intellectual culture that we're in, guys, the understanding has come from God. Notice that the source of our understanding is Him Himself. We are dependent upon God for understanding as we proceed and move forward as well. Second thing to note is we know Him who is truth. How astounding. I think we take that for granted. The world knows Him who is nothing but lies. We know Him who is truth. And it's in that tension between wanting to believe the lies and believe the truth that we find ourselves on a daily basis. We know Him as truth. Jesus is the truth. It is because of God's enabled understanding that we know Jesus, who is the truth. We are dependent upon God for understanding the truth, even in initial salvation, and certainly for working out our salvation. So I'll give you a couple implications for evangelism. As we're talking about proclaiming the gospel, we should pray that God would give us clearer articulation of the gospel so we might present the gospel in an understandable way. Certainly there's an internal piece that has to work in that person that has to help them understand the gospel, but, but you've got to say it in a way that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? You, gotta, you need to know the gospel. Know it. Know how to articulate it. How to contextualize it to the people you're talking to. And ultimately, it's up to God. I know that. But that's not an excuse for us to be lazy in how we articulate the gospel. We should know how to do that. Another implication for evangelism is we should pray that God would grant understandings of the gospel to our lost friends and co-workers and neighbors. That God would open their minds to, to grasp it, to, to know it. And certainly, to love it. To want to surrender and submit to the work of Christ. Third thing, so we know Him who is true, we understand 
The truth has come from God. Third, we abide in Him who is truth. We abide in Him. Abiding in the truth is not a passive, lethargic, extended adolescent waiting on mommy to do his laundry while he plays video games. It is us actively, aggressively abiding in the truth. Abiding in Him is active, aggressive, pursuing understanding of Him, pursuing knowing Him. So John's goal. The goal is to know that I know God. How do I know that I know God? I love the family of God. I'm willing to give my life for the family of God, and it works itself out in practical, spiritual ways even. I also know that I know God because I pursue holiness, not worldly morality. Not just, I want to be a good person so that other people think I'm a good person. It's, I want to live holy because my God is holy. And thirdly, I abide in the truth. I love the truth. I want to know the truth. I want to know more of the truth. And the truth abides in me. Particularly the truth that comes from God's Word. So if you can't say those three things, then you're not a follower of Christ. It's pretty simple. You need Christ. And that's what I was talking about earlier in the pursuit of holiness. If you're not pursuing holiness... You need Christ's holiness. You'll only have that pursuit of holiness once you have Christ's holiness. you only love the family of God once you have Christ's love for the family of God. And that takes faith in the work of Jesus Christ, repenting for your sin, and believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And surrendering your kingship to his kingship. Saying, I'm not king any longer. I suck at being the king. He's good at being the king. And in fact, he's so good at being the king, I don't even know how clue how good he is at being the king. I just know he needs to be the king and I need to stop being the king. I pray, if any of you have never receive Christ, or if these are not markers of your life, that you would surrender to Him, even this moment. And John's goal here is that I would know that I know God. John is saying, those of you who are hearing my words, I desire for you to know that you know God, that it would be certain in your heart, certain in your life, that there would be no question that you would live with confidence and power and assurance, knowing that you know God, that you have assurance of your faith. This is not John just transmitting a little bit of information for us to to gather and, and package and put away and think about maybe when it's convenient. He wants us to know the one true living God. So John's goal is that, that we would know God. The result of this goal is a heart seeking God's will that is utterly and completely satisfied in Him. The result of this goal is a heart seeking God's will that is utterly and completely satisfied in Him. All right, 
1 John 5, 14-15, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. So the first thought, a, a heart's desire for the will of God. Don't miss that tucked right in the middle of that passage. Don't miss it. John says that there is a desire for the will of God. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will. John's implying the necessity and the natural occurrence of a heart that knows God. That he or she would desire the will of God. This is not an asking of anything and you will get it. In the context, what a person looks like who knows God is the declaration that this person will desire the will of God. Someone who knows God will desire the will of God. So Christian, do your prayers reflect a desire for the will of God? Or do you care about the will of God? Do you stop to consider God's will when it comes to every aspect of your life? Realize that much of God's will for you has already been written in His Word. I think this is where we Christians get kind of messed up. Again, Dr. Platt worked through a lot of this in Secret Church. Which I think it was very, very helpful. But realize that much of God's Word has really been written down in His Word. There is, there is more guidance in the Word than you probably realize. Like, what job should I take? There's probably really good advice in the Word. What sports my kids should play is probably in the Bible. Maybe not whether it's soccer or baseball, but how much should they play? When should they play? As we've already talked about, just an example that of what we've talked about tonight should be guiding things for a job, for sports. Maybe what house should I buy? There's probably good declaration of the will of God concerning what house you buy. Now, probably whether it's brown or white or has three bedrooms or four and you know, whatever, that may not be in there, but where it's at and how much you spend on it. The person I should marry, that's probably in the Bible. Now, it may not tell you whether they're blue, black, white, whatever, what race they are, how aged they are. But you know, it's going to tell you what kind of character they should have. You can weed out a lot of people when it comes to that. How I should parent my kids? That's probably in the Bible. So the, the thing is, we have to learn to look beyond proof texting. Let's stop looking for proof text. There, there may not be a, bio, a Bible verse that says you should buy on this road or buy on this road, but there's certainly guiding principles in there for what size of house or how much I should spend, and what neighborhood I should plant my life in, and things like that. We'll move forward. A heart's desire, those, this heart who knows God is, has a desire for the will of God. Okay. Next thought is a heart that is never left empty. What an amazing thought. He says here that whatever you ask, it'll be given to you. That's a heart that longs for nothing. How many of you longed for something this past week that you could not have? Huh? 
I don't want to say definitively, but there's a good chance that what you were longing for was just very simply not the will of God. Okay? So think about that, though. Think about that, think about that, think about that, think about that. You longed for something that God did not long for. Your heart was not in sync with God. Now, certainly if you longed for, you know, something that God longs for, then maybe the timing of that was off. I don't want to give too many caveats here, but, but certainly you can long for something that clearly, so you long for holiness in your life, right? Well, does God, does God desire for holiness? Yes. So that, I'm not saying that kind of longing is wrong, right? But did you long for something that God has not objectively declared that it's His will? Right? I long for that person to love me. I long for, for this success here or whatever it is. Maybe that's not God's will. Guys, we know that God's will is perfect and that will always come to pass. Nothing ever thwarts God's plans. It stands to reason then that a heart that genuinely sets above all else a desire for God's will, that it will find, this heart will find delight at every corner. Let's think about this for a second. God's will is for you to have a marriage that models and displays the wonderful relationship of His Son to His bride, the church. Think about that. Now find the delight that your heart can find in that. God's will is for, for you to have everything you need to carry out His will. This is clear. God is going to provide everything we need to carry out His will. So think about this. He's going to give you financially, materially, time, health, everything you need to accomplish the will that He's called you to. So if you come down with cancer, that's just simply God enabling you to carry out His will. And if your desire is for something different, then your desire just doesn't line up with God's. Now I'm not saying that, woohoo, cancer, give it to me. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is, if God has given that to you, then that is His will for you. And your desire should be more for the God, for the will of God, than anything. I mean, think about this. This way, we can find delight in affliction and in suffering. I am certain Jesus found delight as he went to the cross. Why? What did he say in the garden? Not my will, but yours. And if Jesus could endure the weight of the wrath of God for the weight of our sin against an infinitely holy God, if he can delight in and desire more greatly the will of God in that, and certainly we can when it comes to finances, sports, relationships, time, material possessions. He has set us free so that we can delight in Him. And then we're never left empty. We're never left wanting more. You see, in this world, we're always trying to grab for more because our heart can't find fulfillment we want more so we do this and we neglect the weightier thing we 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 do this and we avoid what god's told us to do and, and we go grabbing for this and go buying for this and spending time here and doing this and asking for this and because because our heart is just desperately grabbing for something 
And John says, someone who knows God will desire the will of God. And when he desires the will of God, he'll have everything he ever wants. He will want for nothing. So let's think about this. Some things God has already clearly objectively willed for us. God's will is for you to share the gospel with the people in your life. Maybe that's your neighbor, maybe that's your coworker. That's clearly God's will, is for you to proclaim the gospel to them. So if that's His will, then He has already given you everything you need to do it. Already. What are we waiting on? I mean, I'm preaching this to myself. What are we waiting on? God's will is for you to sacrificially be committed and joyfully submissive to the body. We've already read that so far in this passage. So God has already given you everything you need. Like If you desire the will of God, then you'll desire to do that. And then your heart will be satisfied in it. So, as, the, as your heart desires the will of the Father, you will be satisfied and fulfilled so much that you won't know what to do. Hmm. That to me sounds good. So John's goal, John's reward, and the last thing here is John's warning. Guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from idols. Let's look at the last half of verse 20 into all of verse 21. He says, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. See the juxtaposition, see the pitting against themselves. He's the true God, eternal life. Keep yourself from everything else. Keep yourself from everything else. John has adamantly been working to paint the picture of someone who knows God. Now why would John now turn to some relatively foreign language to the, I mean he's not said anything about idols thus far. It's because John understands that you're always worshiping something. You're always worshiping something. You either worship God or you're worshiping something else. You're either teaching your kids to worship God or you're teaching them to worship something else. This is not a, this is not a uh, passive thing. This is not something you can just put in neutral. You're either teaching them to worship God or teaching them to worship something else. Ki- uh, school, sports, TV, you're either teaching them to worship God or worship something else. An idol, let's just call it what it is. You're either telling your co-workers how worthy of worship God is, or you're telling your co-workers how worthy of worship your idols are. You're either leading your spouse to worship God, or you're leading your spouse to worship idols. But the one who knows God will worship God. taking your autonomous, selfish, our autonomous, selfish, prideful flesh and submitting it to the loving care of the family of God is the destruction of self-made idols. That's what John is telling us to do, to give up your selfishness, your pride, submit to the body, lay down your life for the body. What's going on there? Destruction of idols. Slaying your lustful, idolatrous heart in pursuit of holiness is the destruction of, of self-made idols. 
repenting for abiding in lies in order to embrace the truth about God and abide in it is destruction of idols. So John is saying, the children of God, when your life doesn't look this way and you are indeed redeemed, you're worshiping idols. Keep yourself from that. So you see in here, there's the protecting of Christ in 1 John, but then there's the effort that we have to work in this. Like I said, Kevin DeYoung said, effort's not a four-letter word. It's okay. We can talk about effort. You see, John says that the one who knows God will look like this. He will love the family of God. He'll pursue holiness. He'll abide in the truth. He'll believe in the incarnate Son of God. How does this happen? God's testimony in His Son, who is the truth, spurs faith in the truth. And God's testimony, who is His Son, now abides in us. How? By repentance and faith. Jesus, who is the truth, now abides in us. Marvelous. As we know the truth more and more, Jesus says, right, know the truth and what? You shall be set free. So as we know the truth, who is Jesus, as we know him more and more, we will know our sinfulness more. And as we know our sinfulness more, we repent more. Just think about this. If we struggle with loving the family of God, we don't just try to love more. We need to repent more. If we struggle in pursuing holiness, we don't just try harder. We repent more. We're not abiding in the truth. Let's repent for not desiring and loving and abiding in the truth. Now, as we know the truth that abides in us, we are set free from the momentary and unsatisfying delights of this world. And we're set free to the eternal delights of ultimate fulfillment in God, the one who created and the one who knows you inside and out. How do I know that I know God? And I pray that if you do not know the answer to that today or if it's still unsure to you, um, you talk to me, talk to Rusty. There's a number of people around here that you can talk to. Um, I just uh, want to encourage you as we sing and as I pray that if you don't know whether you know Christ whether you know God that you would call out to Him. We can't save you. He can. And you, there's no magical words. You call out to Him. You repent for your sins and place your trust in in His work on behalf of your sin. I'm going to pray for all of us as we get ready to worship here in a few moments. Father, thank You so much for Your Word this morning. Thank You for the attentiveness of Your people. Thank You for Your desire to sanctify us. Father, as we began the sermon, behold our God seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. Father, I pray that those who are redeemed in this room would adore You like they've never adored You before. And Father, I pray that for those in this room that 
do not adore you as a child of God, that they would adore you today for the first time. That they would, that they would stop seeking delight and joy and fulfillment in the things of this world and find it that it can only be ultimately found in you. Father, you are righteous, you are holy, and you demand that of us. But you are also merciful and gracious, and you provided that for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. He lived a life we could not live, and he died the life we could not die. He lived righteously, and he died on our behalf and paid the price that we would spend an eternity paying. Father, thank you. Thank you. Father, you say in your word that if the Son be lifted up, that he would draw all men to himself. So, Father, I pray that you would draw all men to yourself this morning. And, Father, it's in your Son's name we pray.